Today's reading is from Ezra chapter 3, verses 8 through 13. Now in the second year after their coming to the house of God at Jerusalem, in the second month, Zerubbabel the son of Shealtiel and Jeshua the son of Josadak made a beginning together with the rest of their kinsmen, the priests and the Levites, and all who had come to Jerusalem from the captivity. They appointed the Levites from 20 years old and upward to supervise the work of the house of the Lord. And Jeshua with his sons and his brothers and Cadmiel and his sons, the sons of Judah, together supervised the workmen in the house of God, along with the sons of Henadad and the Levites, their sons and brothers. And when the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests and their vestments came forward with trumpets, and the Levites, the sons of Asaph, with cymbals to praise the Lord, according to the directions of David, the king of Israel. And they sang responsively, praising and giving thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever toward Israel. And all the people shouted with a great shout when they praised to the Lord, because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. But many of the priests and Levites and heads of fathers' houses, old men who had seen the first house, wept with a loud voice when they saw the foundation of this house being laid, though many shouted aloud for joy, so that the people could not distinguish the sound of the joyful shout from the sound of the people's weeping. For the people shouted with a great shout, and the sound was heard far away. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Okay. I've already said good morning. So, uh, one of the reasons it's so difficult to do a survey like that and to interrupt the service is because we really view our time together in these mornings as really one thing that we're doing. So, there's not the music and then the creed and then the sermon and then more music. We really view it as one collective whole, one act of worship, a liturgy that we go through together as a body of believers. And it's that liturgy, that movement that we do once a week in our lives, that whole thing together is an act of worship that we believe uh, the Spirit uses to actually change us. So that there's a difference between hearing a podcast and hearing preaching together when you're sitting next to somebody who it's also hopefully impacting by the Spirit. So it, it, there was a lot of conversation around uh, doing a survey like we did this morning because it interrupts that sort of flow. But we, we really hope that it'll be valuable uh, and that it'll, it will sort of give us the information that we need to make wise decisions for where we are as a church. So with that said, uh, normally, uh, normally this feels like a very uninterrupted moment with a real flow, but now we're getting into some preaching after you've gone into a totally different space of answering questions. Uh, so before we start uh, going through this text together, let's pray. Father, I pray that uh, through your word this morning, your spirit would move in our hearts. Lord, that uh, the sort of strangeness that we see in this text about a people that feel very disconnected from our present place in history, Lord, that uh, you would let us see how connected we really are and how your work in their story can really inform how you're working in our stories. Father, I pray that our hearts would be open to that uh, and that your word would be effective in communicating that. Lord, we lift this up in Jesus' name. Amen. So, we are entering our second week in uh, the book of Ezra. We're, going, we're doing a series called Reliving the Glory Days that looks from Ezra through Nehemiah. 
two books in the Old Testament that capture this really unique moment in history where the kingdom of Israel had been ransacked by Babylon. And the people, the Israelites, especially those in Jerusalem, had been removed from their home city and taken into exile to live as foreign captives in the city of Babylon. Now, they lived there for just under 70 years. Fast forward to where we are now with Ezra and Nehemiah, and this is the story of those exiles returning. This is their return to their home, their return to Jerusalem. What we see is them rebuilding a temple, rebuilding a community, regaining their identity as a community, as well as rebuilding their city. So we see a temple rebuilt, a community rebuilt, and a city rebuilt, even the infrastructure of a city. Now, this, what, we, what we'll interact with and see throughout this time is a couple of characters. One we'll see today is Zerubbabel, uh, actually three characters. We'll see Zerubbabel, Ezra, and Nehemiah. So, ne- uh, and in the lives of these men, what we'll see is this incredible courage, this amazing fortitude that they have, this incredible passionate faithfulness, and what we're able to see is that they had these sorts of characteristics, these really admirable characteristics, because they were able to connect the work that they were doing in their lives to the greater work that God was doing in history. When we see, when we see how God was working through their lives in the minutiae, in the details, we're able to see the way that God works in our lives, in our minutia, in our details, in ways that are perhaps more common than we might have anticipated. So last week, what we saw was the story of their initial return. We saw the, the new king that they are under in the new empire that they are under, which is now the Persian Empire. This new king named Cyrus issues a decree which uh, basically because of a policy change that he had in his empire, he was sending all of Babylon's captive exiles back home. So all of a sudden, because of a change in this course of world events that takes place, all of these captive exiles are able to now go home, to resettle, to recapture their identity in the land that God had promised them. So last week we saw how Cyrus's, King Cyrus's decree, how his change in policy was truly an act of God, that this was God working through policy, and this was God's providence that was truly freeing the exiles. It was his spirit moving in the heart of King Cyrus that allows the exiles to be free. From that, we were able to see that the freedom that the exiles were given was truly a work of God. And that if you were in it, you might have just thought, this is just a change in policy. This is just a new governmental structure. But by the Spirit, they were able to see that, no, this is what the work of God freeing us truly looks like. He was able to guide the heart of a king to set us free. This morning, we're a a little bit further down the road of this story, of their return. In some verses that we didn't read, just before those verses, we would have seen this re-inauguration of their culture and of their form of worship, of the Israelites' worship to God. So they almost immediately reconstruct the altar 
where the altar would have been before it was destroyed, in its exact place. And they immediately start adhering back to their calendar, the one that they would have followed with the celebrations of the history of how God had worked in the lives of uh, their ancestors. And we see them offering burnt offerings on this altar together, erected precisely in its place, precisely according to the law of Moses. There's this sort of rebuilding that takes place. Uh, But as we continue on, we'll see that their rebuilding is almost always colored by the way that the temple was before they went into exile. There's always this tinge of, ah, it just doesn't seem like we're really recapturing who we were. We're trying to get back to this pre-exilic state, trying to get back to this time before it all went wrong, before our nation was ransacked. We're trying to, that's the name of our series, we're trying to relive these glory days in a sense, and yet it seems like just a false summit. They're just never quite able to get there. So this morning, we're going to look at that kind of experience, that kind of a false summit experience. First, we'll look at their rebuilding of the temple. Then we're going to look at their remembering of the old temple. And then we're going to look at the recalibrating that God does in their hearts. Three R's. I'm sticking with alliteration for this one. Uh, Although a lot of times, like when I see somebody make like an acrostic for a sermon outline, it's like, oh, that's not really in the text, is it? (laughs) Is what goes through my head. But hopefully that's not going through yours now. Although it almost certainly is because I'm talking about it. So, first of all, rebuilding. In Ezra 3, 6 to 7, it captures this moment like this. It says, from the first day of the seventh month, They began to offer burnt offerings to the Lord. But the foundation of the temple of the Lord was not yet laid. So they gave money to the masons and the carpenters and food, drink, and oil to the Sidonians and the Tyrians to bring cedar trees from Lebanon to the sea, to Joppa, according to the grant they had from Cyrus, king of Persia. See, what we can notice is that Jerusalem is being rebuilt from the inside out. It starts with the altar, and they have an altar even before they have a temple to house the altar. And so they're going through these practices of uh, sacrificing on the altar according to the law of Moses, and they say, we have no temple, so it's time to rebuild this temple. Now, this isn't like us losing our church and then deciding it's time to rebuild our church, because we don't relate to this building in the same way that they had related to their temple. The temple was the literal dwelling place of God with them. It represents this amazing tension between humanity and God in that you can't just walk into it without loads of rituals and practices to establish your own cleanliness, and yet it takes place right in the center of their community. So, in a sense, it represents the distance in the holiness of God, in the way that God is different from us and totally holy, and yet it's right, he's right in our midst, right in the center of our community. And so, when they're rebuilding the temple, they aren't just rebuilding a nice place to gather with, like, a swamp cooler that's working overtime. They are rebuilding their actual identity, They're rebuilding how they relate to God, the very 
dwelling place of God amidst their people, the thing in the world that says this is where God is. He is in the midst of us because he set us aside as his people. That's what they're rebuilding. This is not just a building. This is a people who had been stripped of the presence of God in the center of their community, looking to recapture that by the grace of God. This is a bigger move than just rebuilding a building. It's a recapturing of an identity. We'll see that this recapturing, what it means, what it reestablishes them as is the holy priesthood of God. People who have contact with God, who can in a sense mediate God to the world. That's the identity that was lost, that's looking to be recaptured. In the descriptions of their rebuilding, we see that it's always colored by this sort of conscious imitation of the rebuild, or excuse me, of the building of the original temple, the one that they had been stripped of, the one that Solomon had built like 430 years before. Not like, I looked. <laughs> it's 430 years before. That temple. And so they're, re- they're uh, rebuilding their their rebuilding now is always colored by this history that they have of building the original temple. And we can see that in clear ways. So, for example, in 1 Kings 5.9, it reads, my servants, this is Solomon, he says, my servants shall bring it down to the sea from Lebanon, and I will make it into rafts to go by sea to the place you direct. And I will have them broken up there, and you shall receive it, and you shall meet my wishes by providing food for my household. The it there." Um, you shouldn't use a pronoun without an antecedent, my English teacher would say. The it there is referring to the timber, the lumber that they were getting to rebuild the temple. It's coming from literally the exact same forests of Lebanon that they had built the original temple with. They're these forests that over 430 years have probably regrown and been chopped down and regrown and been chopped down. Now we're recapturing the same forest to build our temple, taking place by the same sea route that we had used 430 years earlier to establish the original temple. There's this critical difference, though, that we can see in 2 Chronicles 2.10, and that's in the payment of the temple. 2 Chronicles 2.10, it records Solomon paying for these resources, the timber especially. It says, I will give for your servants, the woodsmen who cut timber, 20,000 cores of crushed wheat, 20,000 cores of barley, 20,000 baths of wine, and 20,000 baths of oil. I don't know how much that is, but it seems like a lot to me. See, what Solomon was able to do is take the abundance that Jerusalem had as they experienced this height of their kingdom. And he was able to just pay for the temple that they were originally building. He was able to just, in a sense, stroke a check and make it happen. He could just pay for it. But this rebuilding of the temple, the payment takes place in a really different way. As we saw last time, and as is introduced in this section of the text that we're looking at, they're paying for the timber that they're getting according to a grant from King Cyrus. They just got back to the land. There was no time to grow their own profit that they could use to pay for this temple of their own accord. See, there's a sort of humility in the way that they're rebuilding the temple that wasn't taking place in the original building of the temple. In the original building of the temple, you could just write a check and it would be there. In this 
rebuilding. It is purely a gift from a, a nation that isn't your own, that is literally sponsoring you to rebuild your temple. This is something that the, they could take no pride in because it wasn't something that they had earned. It wasn't something that they had created. They couldn't boast in the glory of their temple because what was needed to build it was just given to them. All they could be was grateful. All they could have for this new temple, this time, this rebuilding, was just a sense of gratitude. And we see that in the text, that they understood God's working to reestablish this new temple. Ezra 3.11 says they sang responsively, praising and giving thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever toward Israel. See, there's this clear understanding of this is God giving this to us. This is God giving us our temple. This isn't us by our own profit and wealth being able to provide this for ourselves. So we see that matched in their gratitude. But that doesn't last very long. So let's move on to remembering. In Ezra 1, 12 to 13, it says, But many of the priests and Levites and heads of fathers' houses, old men who had seen the first house, wept with a loud voice when they saw the foundation of this house being laid. Though many shouted aloud for joy, so that the people could not distinguish the sound of the joyful shout from the sound of the people's weeping. For the people shouted with a great shout, and the, shout, and the sound was heard far away. So did you hear what happened there? There's these elders who had been alive since, who had lived to see the original temple in its full glory. And when they see the erection, the foundation laid of the new temple, they look and they're literally weeping. They're saying, yeah, this may look good to you guys who didn't see the old temple, but this is not the old temple. This is not what we had before. I mean, consider this moment. This is a people who had been stripped from their homes, looking forward to this moment where they would finally regain the lives that they had lost, the lives that they had taken from them. And then they get to this moment that they think is just an evidence of God's providence working in the world to restore them to the glory that they once had. And then they get there, and it's just not that glorious. This isn't the temple that we had seen before. It seems sort of, it just missed. This isn't it. They're weeping and shouting. It's like when CU and CSU play each other at mile high and one team scores a touchdown. This is that sound <laughs> of that great shout. Because you can't, just, it just sounds loud like a great shout, but you can't distinguish between the woo, go CU, and the oh man of CSU. Yeah, that was intentional. <laughs> That's what that sounds like. See, that mixed shout, that this was the thing that I was so looking forward to, and it's just, 
not quite there. That type of disappointment, we know. We know what that feels like. We, you know what it's like to have your terrible job and then finally get another one. And, you know, the same stresses are here. They just wear different titles. You know what it's like to look so forward to marriage and then to finally get into it and realize, you know, I feel just as lonely. And maybe even more, maybe even it's a little scarier, my loneliness this time. You know what it's like to look so forward to having a child and then uh, uh, facing difficulties with them. (laughs) When, uh, this one's personal, but it's probably worth sharing. Russ says if you're scared to share it, then that's probably when you're about right. Uh, But when my wife and I first got pregnant, we weren't planning on it. And I know this is in some ways awful to share because so many are trying and not able to get pregnant. Uh, But we weren't planning on it. And I feel like this shout captures our experience so well of this, there is this joy in it. Part of it is this joy, but there's also this, we really wanted to be dual income, no kids for a while longer. And now that's gone away. (laughs) So that's like a somewhat tangible, but probably may not gain much respect for that example. We know what that experience is like to set our hopes so clearly on something and then to get it and it just to have not quite been there. That can be a horrifying experience to have lost a life that you previously had and to think you may be recovering it and realize that life will never be recovered. It can never be there in that same way. The way that they had experienced the, this shout is that sort of tension that we experience, I think, pretty frequently. The elders who had seen the previous temple Uh, they would have been familiar with the history of its inauguration. This temple, the the original temple, Solomon's temple, the walls were literally lined with gold. These walls, paid for with a grant, are not lined with gold. And at the inauguration, this history that they would have been familiar with, although they wouldn't have been there, but they would have been familiar with, the last time that they had sang together at the construction of a temple, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever, is recorded in Second Chronicles 5, 13 to 14. It says, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. The house, this is what happened, the original temple. The house, the house of the Lord was filled with a cloud so that the priests could not stand to minister because of the cloud. For the glory of the Lord filled the house of God. See, not only was the temple more beautiful and more incredible to look at, but they had this tangible expression of it being the thing that they had intended it to be when they built it. The dwelling place of God. God's spirit actually coming down to dwell and inhabit the temple. 
inhabiting the praises of his people in the temple. That moment is not repeated in Ezra. We don't see that moment happen here. The elders would have been familiar with that. And so amidst this joyous praise of the people who have worked so hard to reestablish this temple by the grant of King Cyrus, there is this groan. Is God really here? Is he really reestablishing us in the way that we had expected him to? Is the glory that we once had ever going to be visited again? I think that's a relatable feeling. Is the life that perhaps I once had, the joy that I once had, will that ever be known again in a way like that? Will that ever be tangible again? The elders really felt that. So, what we see happen, and this was, this was sort of an odd sermon to prepare for because I was looking through this text and, and there's this celebration and the whole chapter is arcing towards this great moment of the, the ritual practices of the temple being reestablished and then the temple itself being reconstructed and then this, this great shout at the end is kind of like, well, now I don't know what to do with this text. <laughs> That's a weird moment. Why would Ezra end this section that way? Why is it told in those terms? But luckily, which uh, is probably a funny choice of words, there's a, uh, a prophet who was alive at this same time. And there were actually two, Zechariah and Haggai. But for this instance, we're going to be looking at Haggai, which is in the very end of the Old Testament, those minor prophets with names that are either names or sneezes. Um, and uh, Haggai is one of them. And he's alive during this time, and he speaks directly to this moment. And he answers this question of, why didn't God restore them to the glory that we had expected him to? Why didn't he restore them to the glory that we had hoped to see in Jerusalem again? Seventy years in exile, looking forward to a moment, why not bring this moment to its fulfillment as we had expected to see? Why, why didn't this job actually work? Why didn't this project that everything it seemed in my life to be arcing towards, that all of these factors seemed to be pointing me in this direction, and yet it just didn't work? It never actually came together. Why was God operating that way in their life and in ours so often? Haggai offers a recalibration, a recalibration of their understanding of the temple, a recalibration of their understanding of what it actually means to be saved by God, of what it actually means to be rescued, to be brought into his glory. We have an understanding of what it will look like if God actually saves me. And then if he doesn't meet that expectation in a clear way, then we think that it hasn't happened. But really, we weren't looking for God's salvation. We were looking for something else. We were looking for the salvation of marriage. We were looking for the salvation of a career. We were looking for the salvation of approval from our parents or from uh, our boss. 
That's the salvation we were actually looking for. We were looking for the gold-platedness of the walls of our temple. But Haggai recalibrates what their salvation will actually look like. So, he says in Haggai 2, 3 to 5, he says, Who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? How do you see it now? Is it not as nothing in your eyes? Yet now, be strong, O Zerubbabel. This is who was reconstructing it, declares the Lord. Be strong, O Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord. Work, for I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts. Haggai begins by reestablishing their faith in God's presence and work in their lives. That's the immediate thing that he goes to. He says, this, what does this temple look like to you? To you who saw the previous temple. It says nothing in your eyes, right? This is nothing. This is not salvation to you because the glory that you expected to be returned to, you aren't seeing anymore. He says, but what do, you, what do you need to remember? How can you be strong to continue this work of reestablishing yourselves as the people of God, of reestablishing yourselves as this holy priesthood that's meant to be a blessing in the world. How can you continue to work? It's going to start by you remembering and you knowing that God is with you. You don't have a cloud to look at now. You don't have a gold-plated temple to look at now to remind you of that, to help you understand that clearly. Instead, what he does, he continues... After it says, after the Lord says through Haggai, work for I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts. Then he says, according to the covenant that I made with you when you came out of Egypt, my spirit remains in your midst. Fear not. The first thing he does is he reestablishes their faith in the past promises of God. He says, you see, I've been the one who saves you. I'm the one who rescued, you, who rescued you out of Egypt. So what is your faith going to be in? It's going to be in God, the one who rescues you. It's going to be in God who formed a covenant with you, who made this promise together with you. And so that means you can walk up and look at a temple without gold-plated walls and say, I know that God is still with us. Why? Because he's the God who made a covenant with us. God does things like this in our lives all the time, I think, where we, we are walking towards something that if it, if it happens, you know, if I finally do achieve this sort of promotion, which seems like the road that God was calling me on, then I will know that God is with me and that he is being faithful towards me. You see, that's having your faith act functionally in, I say that word a lot and I'm going to hear about it, but that puts our faith functionally in the gold-platedness of the walls of our life. It puts our faith functionally in the promotion. And then the promotion determines whether or not God is with you and God is for you. But what Haggai is saying is he says, look at the promise of God. He has rescued you. He is your people. He, he, you are his people. He has promised to be with you. Therefore, now what's dictating what? It's God's promises that are dictating the outlook of your circumstances. 
So now they're able to see this temple that doesn't exactly measure up and still know, by reestablishing their faith, still know that God is with them, that God is for them. So because of that, they're able to have this steadfastness, this fortitude. I love the way that it's said, uh, that Haggai says it. He says, be strong, you people of the land, declares the Lord. Work, for I am with you. You can be strong. You can work amidst the difficulties of your circumstances, amidst circumstances that would actually cause you to think, uh, perhaps this is the wrong direction. Perhaps this is evidence that God isn't with me. That's exposing where your faith actually is. Is your faith in your circumstances or is your faith in the promises of God, the character of God? So Haggai reestablishes their faith and then he recalibrates their hope to something beyond the temple. In Haggai 2, 6 to 9, it says this, For thus says the Lord of hosts, Yet once more, in a little while, I will shake the heavens and the earth, and the sea and the dry land, and I will shake all nations, so that the treasures of all nations shall come in. And I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine, the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. See, he recalibrates their hope. Their hope had been this past glory being able to be regained. And he's saying, no, no, you're being too short-sighted. You aren't seeing this clearly enough. This, the reestablishment of this temple, this wasn't the end goal. This was your end goal, but this wasn't God's end goal. He says, my end goal was well beyond that. The reestablishment of this temple it isn't something to be mourned over. This is a stepping stone in my plan to be celebrated. Because what I'm planning on doing is, goes far beyond the reestablishment of this temple. The reestablishment of the temple is organically connected to a far greater work that God is doing in history. And so to give them the fortitude that they need to continue on amidst this disappointment, he's showing them something greater than they had previously imagined in the temple. He's redirecting what they think glory means. They had thought glory meant the gold-platedness of the temple. And he's saying, God is saying, I, I have all of the gold of all of the nations, and a day will come where I will shake all of the nations to bring all of the gold into my Jerusalem. All of that glory will be made manifest. And this Jerusalem that you, re, that you are rebuilding, in it I will bring a peace beyond anything you're imagining now. And so this looks like an incomplete end because it is an incomplete end. This isn't the ends that we're striving for. The ends that we're striving for are so much greater than, you're previously, than you had previously imagined. You're just trying to recapture a glory that you can grasp. And what you're actually working towards is something that's incomprehensible to you. He recalibrates their hope. You see, the temple being not the final end that God is working towards, 
This doesn't minimize their work on the temple or make it less meaningful. It actually makes it more meaningful. It makes their work on the temple part of a greater story that God is working. Haggai is clear to reestablish their faith in the promises of God, that they can continue moving despite their circumstances, and then to recalibrate their hope so that they can see the end that they're working towards is far greater than they had previously imagined. And this is true for us as well, except for so much more. Because the peace that he refers to being brought through Jerusalem, we know what that is. We know that he's referring to Jesus, ultimately bringing a peace in Jerusalem between us and God, redeeming a people for himself, that we might rebuild the whole of creation and see a whole new heavens and a new earth, a new Jerusalem. Not a place with gold-plated temples, but a place with no more tears, a place with no more disease, no more sadness, no more pain, no more suffering, a place where the presence of God isn't through the walls of a building, but where the presence of God is in our midst always and forever. And our work now, by God's Spirit working in us, is moving towards this greater kingdom. It's calibrating, recalibrating our hope towards something so much greater than we typically imagine. So what does that mean for our typical work days? It means that in the same way that the temple's work was organically connected to this greater hope, so is our work now, your work now, organically connected to this greater hope that God is working in the world, which means that your experience of work will probably be filled with a lot of mixed emotions, especially when you treat it as the end. When you see that the glory that God is working in the world is the success of your business, so that if you don't see the success of your business in the way that you expect it to, then God isn't working in the world. But another option is you see God is working in the world and he can use the success of my business to accomplish a greater glory that he is looking to accomplish in the world. And so, whether I see it or not, I know that God is working towards it. And so, I know that even through difficult seasons, I can trust that he is for me because the peace that he brought at Jerusalem was the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And we know that there can be life brought from this death. I know that he won't abandon me because he's already done the hardest thing, which was giving his son. We can know that so much, that's so much greater than a rescue from Egypt. And yet a rescue from Egypt was enough for Zerubbabel in this book that we're reading to continue the construction of the temple. And we have so much more than that. And the hope that we have to recalibrate towards is so much greater than the reestablishment of Israel as a kingdom. But it's the whole new heavens and the new earth. And when we're able to connect our work to this grander story, there's a resilience, there's a fortitude that we can come to experience in that. But it requires us seeing the peace that was brought by Jesus at Jerusalem, the peace that was promised, the one that in some way the rebuilding of this temple was moving towards. 
our work now is working in that same way. One of, uh, a theologian that I really like uh, is named N.T. Wright. Um, you know you're a good theologian when it's just two initials and a last name. So he was the Bishop of Durham for the Church of England. He no longer is, but he was for a while. Um, and he captures, he captures this tension so well. He says, the point of the resurrection is that the present bodily life is not valueless just because it will die. God will raise it to new life. What you do with your body in the present matters because God has a great future in store for it. What you do in the present by painting, preaching, singing, sewing, praying, teaching, building hospitals, digging wells, campaigning for justice, writing poems, caring for the needy, loving your neighbor as yourself, will last into God's future. See, that's the greater hope that we have, that we can recalibrate towards, that God is redeeming all of creation, and he's doing so through a church that he's bringing to himself. When we treat the, when we treat the parts of the story, which we're in, we're in a part of the story, as the, the end of the story, then it's so often that we just become disappointed and discouraged and start to think that God is not actually working in this. But what we need to do is, like Haggai allows the Israelites to do, which was to reestablish their faith in the promises of God. For us, it's even greater than theirs because we can reestablish our faith in the fact of the resurrection of Jesus, knowing that God won't abandon us because he's done the hardest thing. So is he in our midst? He's in our midst. And recalibrating our hope towards not just a renewed Jerusalem, but a new heavens and a new earth, a renewed all of creation. So that the the present difficulties that you face, you're able to look beyond and see these are part of the story. So whatever successes we find here, I can celebrate, knowing that they're connected to this new thing that God is creating. I will pray after we do questions that that would grant us a steadfastness that we need, and we would learn amidst the disappointments of our lives that God is recalibrating our hopes towards a salvation that we often don't expect a salvation that when we experience it can often feel like a letdown. We need to reestablish. He is with us. We need to recalibrate. He's doing something greater than we had expected, greater than the gold-platedness of our temples. All right, with that, let's take some questions. Where did the Israelites believe that God went when the temple was unavailable for him to dwell in? <laughs> That's a good question. Um, I, I, I don't know. I mean, the, the presence of an omnipresent God is, we're obviously working in a layered metaphor. So the presence of God means something more personal, more tangibly relatable than simply he's actually present there, knowing and active of what's going on. 
So we've just got to be able to work in that sort of tension. When you're reading the Bible, you're reading something that's written by humans for humans to understand a, a, a God that completely surpasses all of our ways. And so we're always operating in these metaphors that can get us close to something that we can understand, point us towards something that we can grasp more clearly. So when it, where did he go? I don't think it's... Uh, I don't think it's really the, the right question to ask because this isn't, this isn't a matter of uh, uh, physical proximity. It's a matter of relational proximity. Next question. Is Haggai 2, 6 to 9, a reference to the peace brought about by Jesus' death and resurrection? Uh, yes, it is. Uh, we can see that in the way that it connects with Isaiah 60 uh, and, al- and also through that sort of whole passage, even through Isaiah 65, which is the description of the new heavens and the new earth. And the peace that's being described is a complete and total peace. So if we had read the first part of the passage, you would have seen that the term burnt offering occurs like five or six times. And the reason that the term burnt offering occurs that many times is because they, it was a constantly repeated process of offering burnt offerings, of offering an atonement to God in an attempt to mitigate his wrath for a time, to bring some, some semblance of peace for a time. But it wasn't perfect in that it didn't last forever. But the peace that we see brought in Jesus is a one-time sacrifice, once for all time so that he might bring us to God. So in that, it is, a, it is a completeness of peace that we see brought only in Jesus by his sacrifice. Next question. Awesome. Okay, let's pray. Father, this is a lot of history, and there's an old temple and a new temple, and this feels like a culture that's difficult to relate to, and there's all these nuances that can be difficult to grasp. Uh, A lot of detail and complexity. Father, I pray that you would allow us to see how this really matters for our lives and your work in them. Lord, we all know that experience, that's that mixed shout that we can feel even amidst just ourselves as one person, of a sort of joy, but a disappointment, a graduation, and a moving back in with our parents. Father, I pray that in those moments, Father, in the, in the cities we thought we could move to to gain a new life, in the difficulties we unexpectedly encountered there. Lord, would you help us to reestablish by faith your presence, by remembering your gospel, by remembering the peace that you have brought and guaranteed for our future. And Lord, would you help us to recalibrate our hope that we could somehow be celebrating the steps towards your new heavens and your new earth, 
knowing that they're certain because of Jesus. Lord, would you help us connect our lives to the greater story that you're doing and not give us small minds that view our stories as the end because that just leads to discouragement and giving up. But Lord, would you help us connect our stories to your end because that's the only one that really matters. Help our, help, help our hearts be captured by that, to see your glory, not the glory that we expect to see, but your actual glory. Father, I lift this up in Jesus' name. Amen. You can find more audio as well as study questions and sermon notes at l2church.com. If you have any comments or questions, feel free to shoot us a message through the contact form on our website. Thanks for listening.